สังเกตเจดังสกทีชกนามลาชังจุบาดุดักนีเขียบสุจีดากิจินสกิเพสโนามกิโรลาพันชีสังเกตรุกบาโชสังเกตเจดังสกทีชกนามลาจังจุบาดุดักนีเขียบสุจีดากิจินสกิเพสโนามจีโรลาพันชีสังเกตรุบาโชสังเกตเจดังสกทีชกนามลาจังจุบาดุดักนิกชับสุจีดักทีจินสกดีเพสโนนามจีโรลาพันเจสังเกตรุกบาโช Until becoming enlightened, I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Supreme Assembly. May the merits from my generosity and so on result in Buddhahood for the benefit of my greaters. Namo. Mo wo tong pa che ji ku rang jen sawa long cho to. ทุกเจนาชกทุกุลาจังจุบาดุขยับสุจีนัมโม The essence empty Dharmakaya The nature clarity Sambhogakaya The compassion manifold Nirmanakaya In that I take refuge until enlightenment Ho oh. ขันยามรัวมหิปะสังเกสารเกเปเจจบปะเชนเปมังงังยรังเรกเชกุทุปะจามโอ In order to set every one of the migrators extensive as empty space, the level of a Buddha. I will use the upadesha of the great completion to realize self-arising rigpa dharmakaya. Saji paki chukjing metag tram rirab lingji nide gyanpadi sange jingdu migte ulwarji. Drokun namdag jingla chopar shok. This base, perfumed with scent, sprinkled with flowers, adorned with Mount Meru, the four continents, the sun and moon, I visualize as a Buddha realm and offer to you. May all my greaters enjoy a pure realm. Semchan namji sambadang. เลยเชตรักจิตาวาเชจงทนมนเทกปายเชจิโคโลโคสุโซ According to sentient beings' thoughts and specific mental capacities, 
Please turn the wheel of Dharma of the greater, lesser, or common vehicles. One of the um, subjects that uh, Rinpoche has been touching on, a phrase that he's been using a, a few times um, uh, today and, and other days, is uh, the phrase of non-abiding. Um, uh, also, I, I should you should bear in mind I'm not trying to be kind of more abstruse than even the the uh, kind of subtle philosophies of Tibetan Buddhism. But um, uh, this is a, um, a really uh, significant, important principle to, to understand and as a basis for uh, liberation, as a basis for freedom. It's not just a kind of um, uh, interesting or, or inspiring uh, philosophy or idea, but it's, uh, it's if you like, the, uh, the kind of uh, doorway, it's a, the escape hatch, in some ways, from uh, from the world of of uh, me and my problems into the world of of uh, freedom. About um, let's see, somewhere in 1981. Um, I was living at, uh, at Chithurst Monastery in southern England, and uh, Ajahn Sumedho was the abbot there at that time. He's an American monk who's an elder uh, Western disciple of uh, Ajahn Chah, who was a Thai meditation master. And Ajahn Chah, even though he could read and write, um, very rarely did, and, uh, and particularly at writing letters, he was uh, significantly disinclined to do. And uh, anyway, one day in the mail there arrived, actually he didn't really write it, he dictated it. So. One day in the mail there arrived this note uh, from one of the Western monks, and uh, he was staying in the same monastery as Ajahn Chah. And we'd heard that Ajahn Chah's health had not been good, and he'd gone off to stay in one of the branch monasteries up on this um, hilltop. Um, and uh, it was a... a the letter began, you know, it was a letter to Ajahn Sumedho, and he said, you're never going to believe this, but, uh, but Lung Po, Ajahn Chah, asked me to, uh, to take a letter to you. To, you know, he wanted to dictate a letter to you. And uh, it was fairly brief, and this is what the letter said. Whenever you have feelings of love or hate for anything whatsoever, these will be your aids and partners in building paramita, building spiritual qualities. The Buddha Dharma is not to be found in moving forwards, nor in moving backwards, nor in standing still. This, Sumato, is your place of non-abiding. The Buddha Dharma is not to be found in moving forwards, nor in moving backwards, nor in standing still. This, Sumato, is your place of non-abiding. 
a few weeks after that, he was hit by a stroke, and that was the uh, end of his verbal teaching career. So this was his sort of final instructions to his uh, heart son. Okay, Samedo, get it? <laughs> final orders. And uh, this was, he was well aware of, of all the tasks and difficulties of establishing you know, Buddhist monasteries in the West. And uh, so what, you know, what, would you, what would you do if you're trying to give someone all the advice they need how to establish a, a, a new place in a far-off country? Well, do this and don't do that and make sure you remember this. And no, none of that. Just the Buddha Dharma is not to be found in moving forwards, nor in moving backwards, nor in standing still. And what that does is that uh, it kind of frustrates the thinking mind. Right? <laughs> or it gets the thinking mind going like, well, what about to the side? <laughs> you know, or how about just the elevating, you know, going above it all, you know, or tunneling. <laughs> and, but you could just, uh, and I, I experienced this myself, because this was not just the advice that Ajahn Chah gave to Ajahn Sumedho, but he used to like kind of um, teasing people, or he, when people would come to visit him, he was... Um, he would spend a lot of his time at the monastery in, in Thailand, just sitting on this bench under his, his large, as uh, a large open space under his hut, and that was where he would receive visitors. And he'd just sit on this, this kind of wickerwork bench and receive people from like 10 o'clock in the morning till midnight, every day. <laughs> sometimes longer, I mean sometimes less, but sometimes like till 2 or 3 in the morning. And he would just receive people. And so occasionally he would put this kind of question, to people, he say, well, "If you can't go forwards and you can't go back and you can't stand still, where do you go?" You know, and then they would try this reply and that reply, and he just they're going. And I, you know, I saw him doing this a few times. He goes, "No, no, no, that's not it. That's not it." Because what it does is it's pointing us to the fact that we we continually try to resolve um, the the conundrum in terms of our assumptions about self about time, about place. That we assume that I am this individual human being that, ha that is in this spot on the planet and that uh, uh, there is a past, there is a future, there is a present. I am a being here at this spot passing through time. And as long as that's inked in as our, as our kind of set of axioms, then freedom is impossible. There's... there's uh, the, the Dharma, the true Dharma, is not accessible to us, just as, as Rinpoche has been pointing out, that even if you cling on to the now, if you cling on to the present, then still that's, uh, one is dislocated or dis dissociated from, from the Dharma. So, uh, I, you know, I was really struck by this, and... Um, you know, used to contemplate this, and it was fine. It took me actually—I must admit—it took me a few years to get the <laughs> to get a, a, a to come to a, a, a what what the heart felt was a, a you know valid uh, response. Hardly dare say conclusion, <laughs> but just to see how what this is doing is it's pointing out that it's only by letting go of conceiving ourselves in terms of the body, in terms of space, in terms of time that as soon as we, we stop seeing ourselves as being that, uh, defined in, the, in that way, then, then there's freedom. 
then there's there's the um, the realization of the of the Dhamma, seeing the Dhamma, knowing the Dhamma. So this also, I was, re- I was reminded of this when I was talking a bit, responding to that question last night, um, and how um, the uh, the whole concept of of um, where we are is, if you like, um, pivoted around our uh, identification with the material world, with physical reality, with three-dimensional space, that uh, the way that we identify with that. Now it says there's a here and there's a there. There's a, a coming, there's a going. Uh, we, you know, we have come into this room. We are here, right? We were, a, you know, a little while ago we were outside the room. Now we have all come here. And then when the teaching session's finished, we will go somewhere else. So in terms of the physical reality, there's coming and there's going. But uh, um, where is it that there's no coming and no going? Can we find any kind of completion or finality in the world of coming and going, in the world of here and there? And what the, the Dharma teachings point us to is the fact that, that no, there's no, there's no finality in that. There's no resolution in that. There's no uh, um, wholeness, if you like, in that. Also, uh, this wasn't just a kind of uh, a, a little item that Ajahn Chah came up with, but this is also um, a principle that's, that the Buddha enunciated in the, in the teachings. Um, there's a couple of passages in the, um, uh, what's called the Udana, which is like the inspired utterances of the Buddha, uh, where um, he, he talks in a very similar fashion. There's very few times where the Buddha makes like, metaphysical proclamations. Like, what I mean by that is like making st- kind of a, a f- strong affirmative statements about that which cannot be perceived by the senses. There's only a few places where he really does that. Most of the time he talks about the path in, for us to follow in order to arrive at a realization of that. But there's a few places where he says things like, you know, there is Nibbana, there is the path to Nibbana, there is the ultimate reality. And uh, one of these places he says, um, there is that sphere of being where there is no earth, no water, no fire, no wind, uh, no, uh, no sun, no moon, no stars, no this world, no other world. Um, and in this, in this realm there is neither a coming, nor a going, nor a standing still. Neither a, nor a birth, nor a, um, a growth, a, gener- a birth, a generation, a growth, a decay, and death. There is, uh, and this realm has no basis, no evolution, and no support. It is the end of suffering. And that, that kind of, you know, it wasn't often that he would put out that kind of statement, but he would occasionally do so. And it's, you know, the kind of thing that one has to pick up and, uh, again, to contemplate and reflect on, but he, he put it forth as a, you know, if you have any faith in what I say, this is what I say. <laughs> this is, as far as I'm concerned, this is fact. Um, it's also it kind of interesting that, um, not to get too technical, but there are two verbs to be in Pali, hoti and ati. The, the verb hoti means like, uh, like say, I am hot, or today is Sunday, uh, or I am a man. It's like the um, beingness or, or, or 
in terms of that which is conditioned and, and passing through time and uh, come into being. That's hoti. The verb ati is only used to refer to these kinds, kind of transcendent realities. For like when the Buddha said, there is nibbana, or when he says there is that realm of, of that sphere of being, or there is the unborn, the unoriginated, the unconditioned. In those phrases, he uses a different verb to be. So it's a being which does not imply um, uh, becoming or the world of time and, uh, and identity. It's like a transcendent quality of beingness. So as a, again, it's a kind of, I find an interesting thing to contemplate. The other um, scriptural teaching I thought I'd share with you in this respect, um, which kind of also gives a, an angle on this sense of... of um, uh, it's really talking about the whole subject-object relationship, here and there, this and that, me in here, the world out there, or me here and, and uh, me you know, watching my, my thoughts. Um, and uh, this is a, a teaching that the... the uh, the Buddha gave to um, uh, a wanderer, uh, a wandering mendicant um, called Bahia. And uh, the Bahia, in, in, the, in the scriptures, you have these different characters who, ha- who are known as being preeminent in certain ways. So, like Sariputta was the one preeminent in wisdom, Mahamogalana was the one preeminent in psychic powers. Well, Bahia is the one who had the record for the one who understood the teaching fastest and in least words. He kind of uh, was the, the quickest off the mark. From, from encountering the Buddha to, to total enlightenment, he, uh, he had the record. <laughs> so uh, he, he had, uh, I won't bother with you the whole story, but he, he had been a, a spiritual teacher himself, and then he had been told by um, some, uh, some, uh, de- some devata, some uh, deity that... Uh, even though he was proclaiming himself to be an enlightened being, that actually he was far from being enlightened, and in fact, um, you know, he would do well to stop making that kind of that uh, uh, statement to the world because he's getting himself, he's going to get himself in real trouble if he keeps saying he's enlightened and, and he's falling short of the mark. And so, in Bahir is kind of struck by this sort of radiant being floating in the sky talking to him, and says, "Well, okay, yeah, so so where do I? Where, you know, are there any enlightened beings around?" In the, and this devata says, oh yes, if you go to Savati, you know, you'll find the Buddha Gautama. And uh, he's a totally enlightened Buddha, and uh, you would do well to go and track him down. So uh, it's, it's of note that Bahia didn't sort of go harumph and say, well, you know, I'm fine, I'm fine like I am, thank you very much. But uh, actually took up the, uh, the, um, uh, uh, the opportunity and started walking then and there, just kind of left his, left his uh, ashram, left his disciples and just started walking to find the Buddha and with a great determination. And as the story goes, that uh, the, uh, the Buddha was walking on his arms around through the streets of, of Rajgir when Bahia came upon him. And uh, Bahia stopped him in the street and said, please, uh, you, are the, you are the Buddha Gautama and uh, I, wish to learn from, I wish to learn the Dharma from you. Please teach me. And the Buddha said, this isn't a convenient time, Bahia. We're, you know, I'm on my arms round. Uh, you know, the, wait till we've got back to the monastery, and then I'll teach you. And then Bahia says, <coughs> life is uncertain, venerable sir. You never know when you or I might die. Please, teach me the Dharma. 
And of course, they go back three times. Yeah. <laughs> Everything happens three times in Buddhism. So uh, after the third time, the Buddha says, well, when, the, when a Tathagata is pressed up to the third time, he cannot refuse. So by here, here's your answer. And then he gives him this teaching, which is, um, in the scene, there is only the scene. In the herd, there is only the herd. In the sense, there is only the sense. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. Therefore, Bahia, you should see that there is indeed no thing here. And as you see that in the scene there is only the scene, in the herd there is only the herd, in the sense there is only the sensed, in the cognized there is only the cognized, and you also see that there is actually no thing here, you will also see that indeed there is no thing there. And recognizing that there is, bu- there is neither anything here or anything there, you will find that you cannot, you cannot locate yourself either in the world of this or in the world of that or anywhere between the two. This Bahia is the end of suffering. And he wakes up. So, anybody? <laughs> okay, it's a bit of a hot, steamy afternoon, so maybe I'll try that again, okay. And also, I'm not a fully enlightened Buddhist, so kind of, if you haven't got the shakti behind it, it doesn't really carry quite so well, you know. Like, I have the su- same problem as Rinpoche, you know. Not enough uh, perfections. Or maybe I'm presuming, it, eh? <laughs> So when it says, uh, indeed there is no thing here, what that means is, as we, we, we uh, recognize, oh, the scene is only the scene. This is a form and shape and color. Ah. It's, it's um, you're recognizing, oh, look, there's, there's no thing there. It's just uh, forms and sounds and colors and shapes and patterns and flavors and textures. There's no substance there. There's no uh, solidity. There's no self-existent uh, reality. It's just what you're, it's like bringing it right home to the quality of experience itself. Oh, it's just seen. It's just this, there's just this seeing of, and these hearing, feeling, sensing, cognizing, the mind naming. Oh, the Dharma Hall, Spirit Rock. Oh, Ajahn Amaro's voice. Oh, am I understanding the thought? Am I understanding this? Am I not understanding this? <laughs> So there's that, you're seeing that there's no, like we were talking about with the glass, there's no thingness. There is no thing, there's no solid entity there. And then, in the similarly, like if, okay, well if that out there is, is empty of, of any solidity, then um, following that through, bringing that back home, then that which is doing the cognizing, that which is doing the knowing, then the implication is, oh, if there's, nothing, if there's no solid thing out there, then what, what uh, encourages the belief that there's some solid thing in here? Because if, that's, if there's no thing out there, then, aha, uh-huh, perhaps there's no thing in here either, the world of, of, of um, the subjective. So it's like emptying out the objective domain, emptying out the subjective domain, seeing that both object and subject are, are empty, in that way. And then, uh, then he kind of pinpoints it down, saying, okay, if you can see the objective and the subjective are, 
are both empty, then is there still, if there's still a, a feeling of I-ness and me-ness and minus, okay, has that got a place to live? You find, and he uses that phrase, you cannot find yourself, you cannot locate yourself either in the world of this subject or in the world of that object or anywhere between the two. Do you follow? Okay, so that then this is a, a kind of, again, sort of pulling the plug, taking the, the props away, just like Ajahn Chah was doing with, with Ajahn Sumedha. If you can't go forward and you can't go back and you can't stand still, you know, where do you go? It's like you're not in the world of this, you're not in the world of that, and you're not kind of halfway between the two. And in the classic uh, Mahayana tradition, they, they, uh, in the Shurangama Sutra, which is a, a, Chine, a sutra in the Chinese tradition, they, they pick up this same theme, and, and uh, the Buddha is talking with Ananda, and they go through like, pages and pages and pages of the Buddha asking Ananda, where is your mind? And they <laughs> go into marvelous detail. But basically, the same answer, you know, no matter how hard he tries, Ananda cannot establish where his mind is. And that he's, he's forced to, to the conclusion that I cannot find my mind anywhere. So the Buddha says, yes, but, you're, but you, there is your mind. Your mind does exist, doesn't it? He says, well, yes. He says, well, well then the Buddha finally is drawn to the conclusion that where does not apply. Aha. Which is the point that these, uh, these kind of teachings on, on non-abiding are trying to draw us to, is that the whole um, uh, concept, the construct of awareness, of conceiving ourselves as this being, this individual entity living at this spot in space and time, that uh, this is a presumption. And that by, it's only by kind of frustrating our habitual kind of judgments in this way that... Uh, well, not only, but it's, it's an effective way. By frustrating these habitual judgments, then we're kind of forced into loosening our, our grip in that way, to kind of letting go of that, um, that way of seeing, that kind of uh, formulation. So have I lost everyone? No? That wasn't a trick question, that was... <laughs> that was ordinary, straightforward, are you with me, guys? <laughs> Nothing fancy, right? <laughs> you have to watch out for when you get a sliding between the ultimates and the relatives here. So, um... It's also interesting, uh, you know, Rinpoche has talked a few times, and it's come up in a few, in a few of the questions about how um, in the world of, of physics um, the kind of similar insights are beginning to percolate through into the, into the kind of public eye of the, you know, the physical realm. And there's, it's interesting that in the world of, of particle physics they also talk about uh, non-locality and that you know, a certain level of, of matter, of kind of beingness of, of the material realm, that, um, that there's a principle of non-locality, that you, know, you can't define where something happens. So I won't go into any kind of big detail, I'm not an expert, but it's, it's interesting how the same kind of um, uh, 
principle applies, that when you get kind of right down into the fine sub-subatomic realm, that kind of awareness also simply does not apply. So that um, the the process, and as I understand it, you know the the the, the use of, of vipassana meditation, the, the practice of, of zogchen, um, and also other forms of, of, of kind of reflective practice, um, different ways of working with the mind. They're so in so many different ways. All they're trying to do is to illuminate the subtler and subtler kinds of clinging that we that we uh, formulate, the feeling of of self, the feeling of time the feeling of identity, the feeling of location, um, you know, that, that when, we, um, when we judge ourselves, when we kind of frame our world, when we characterize our world, we're unconsciously concretizing it. And so that, um, so that when we ask questions like, you know, who? then as we say who, that automatically implies uh, the reality of personhood, right? I say, who are you? You say, oh, I'm Sally Clough, or I'm Guy Armstrong, or, you know, I'm Shada, I'm Amaro. That's, you know, so it kind of instantly, as we kind of frame the question, then it's like that, and that's a reasonable answer on the relative level. But we slide into, that's a real thing, and Amaro is a real thing. <coughs> And similarly, what? What is that? What is today? Oh, today is Sunday. You know, and it's gone from being a kind of a human convention, um, born about by the spinning of a you know a spherical lump around a planet somewhere in the middle of this particular galaxy, to become an absolute reality. Today is Sunday. You know, like like uh, Friday was Jewish New Year. And similarly, like you know, we we had the conversation about the the glass. You know, what is it? It's a thing. So that, and similarly, like I was talking about where and location, when concretizes time. So that we we are a kind of in a constant process of of solidifying our world unconsciously, and that what the vipassana practice and dzogchen and these other elements are doing are trying to kind of outline very clearly for us how we're we're constantly and repetitively. Making that, making solid that which is inherently not solid. So it's like when, we, and then it's not like we actually have to, to um, kind of create the dharma. It's like if we stop creating the obscurations, then the dharma is there. So that the practices are aimed at like seeing where the, the subtle forms and the coarse forms of clinging are happening, and then as soon as we recognize that and we can loosen it, then oh, there it is. And there's the there's the kind of openness. There's the spaciousness. Yesterday in the discussion group, someone was saying how you know they have the experience of of um, when they are say developing vipassana meditation, they they still get the feeling of the observer. So it's okay, you know, I can see the thoughts coming and the feelings and the and the you know the sounds and so on, but the observer is still really strong. And he said, "I've had some experience in you know Advaita practice where the observer went. So you know, what do I do to 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 work with that?" And so one of the methods, and I kind of hesitate to start talking methodologies before 
uh, Rinpoche has kind of gone into that terrain, but I will anyway. <laughs> and uh, which is to um, you can you can use a form of um, of uh, questioning for yourself, so that um, you know you you are, are say picking up that um, that feeling of of the observer say, and you just to ask yourself in the, and while the mind is quite calm and steady, just to say you know, who is watching, who is aware, who is knowing this. And that the whole point of posing a question like that is that you're, you're deliberately not looking for a verbal answer. In fact, if you get a verbal answer, it's the wrong one. The whole point of, of asking that question is so that you puncture the presumptions about personhood. Does that make sense? Because so what happens in, the, in the, the spaciousness of the mind, uh, if you put that kind of question clearly and consciously, yeah, who is watching? Who is the, who is the observer? Who am I? Then, quite quickly, the uh, the word "who" starts to sound ridiculous, and not because of a theory, but it's like it seems like well, it's not a who; it's it's a quality. It's not a person. It's a, it's just a, a quality of of knowing. And then, as I've experienced it myself, and, and how you, you can work with this in, in a kind of more and more refined way, so that as the uh, you, you see that feeling of, of uh, personhood kind of falling away, then it's like, well, you start to ask the question, well, what is knowing? What is aware? What is practicing? What is knowing the Dzogchen? Or what is practicing non-meditation. <laughs> and then, sim- in a similar way, that the, the, the question what starts to feel a bit, a bit coarse. That the kind of, that presuming it's a thing. And that we can find then that, that uh, the quality of of, of coarseness that we're, we're giving to that. Saying awareness is like some kind of substance like water or sort of electricity or some kind of stuff happening. And then letting that also gently fall away. And so that we're, we're more and more able to uh, kind of settle back further and further. And so uh, in a similar way, Rinpoche has been talking about letting go of the now and exactly the same process. Like, okay, well if there's there's a, there's no observer, and then you know awareness is not a thing. Okay, we're re- there's this resting in awareness, but there can be a really firm sensation. Oh, this is happening now. Whatever it is, it's happening now. And that we, without noticing, have turned that nowness into a, a solid quality. So that you know, it's like you you kind of find these different levels sort of as one falls away then that we first of all we think oh hey that's great I'm free now this is oh yeah <laughs> open space this is great and then you start to experience this kind of limitation or sort of hmm maybe this isn't quite as somehow this is, there's something wrong here there's still some kind of muck in the system my filters are clogged so, I'm not sure what it is and then you think oh right there's this feeling of nowness 
there's still the, the sense of, oh, this is all happening now. There's a, a lovely uh, verse of the um, third Zen patriarch that I, I like to quote, which is about time. He says, um, In this moment there is nothing which comes to be. In this moment there is nothing which ceases to be. Thus, in this moment there is no birth and death to be brought to an end. Okay? In this moment there is no thing which comes to be. In this moment there is no thing which ceases to be. Thus, in this moment there is no birth and death to be brought to an end. Birth and death depends on time. Something born in the past, living now, will die in the future. And in, in each moment, if we've let go of thingness, you see there's no thing coming to be, there's just this, suchness of the present. Once we let go of, of time in this way, there is no birth and death to be brought to an end. Therefore, this moment, therefore is this moment the absolute peace. And even though it is just this moment, there is no limit to this moment. And herein is eternal delight. Even though it is just this moment, there is no limit to this moment. And herein is eternal delight. So that even just even though you use the language of like moment, which still gives us this feeling of a kind of fragment of time. As I say, well, no, if you start to look at, at letting go of time in this way, you realize that, that there, there is this ocean of, of, the, of the present. When we let go of that, we let, we're letting go of the structures of past and future then this present is an ocean. And, that, uh, and the result of that is uh, the eternal. You follow? Yeah. So, uh, and these, these uh, different elements kind of work in different ways. Maybe you find them happening in different orders. But uh, uh, for myself, I find that, that the kind of and th- this was really the, the, the kind of contemplations about, um, about uh, space and, and place really only kind of hit me a couple of years ago because, you know, I've, I've, I was on a long retreat on my, in our, our monastery kind of in the wintertime doing a lot of solitary practice and, and then uh, and it just suddenly occurred to me that even though I might have let go of the feeling of self or let go of the feeling of, of you know, this and that and thingness and time and so on whatever it was it was all here <laughs> there was still hereness I thought, oh damn <laughs> because this thing never going to end <laughs> but uh, that that uh, but in a way like, recognizing it is half of the half of the job Recognizing that feeling, oh, there's a hereness. So as soon as there's a hereness, then there's the, the, the subtle presence of a thereness. There's a this and a that, an inside and an outside. 
and that you know however we experience it uh, and just feeling these different levels of, of subtle kind of grasping just uh, we can use the same kind of inquiry and so I for a long time for several weeks I was asking myself the question where is here Where is here? And then just you, so like you, you're using the questioning to not get a, a, a verbal answer, but you're using it to illuminate the clinging that's there. So that you, to get an angle on time, or to get an angle on self, or to get an angle on, on, on place, then you use that as part of the question. And then because it's like you're bringing the light of wisdom onto that, it's like, like Rinpoche was saying, you know, once you get the the defilements kind of out into the light, you know, they kind of, they get all nervous and uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, once the clinging is kind of out in the spotlight, it gets all sort of oh, shy and, oh. Because <laughs> it can only really operate if you're not looking. <laughs> if it's kind of on stage and all the lights are on it, then it can't really function properly. It can't do its kind of, its kind of uh, clinging business. <laughs> you can't get a real confusion going if there's too much wisdom around. Okay, so uh, I'll, I'll talk some more uh, as the days go by about this kind of methodology. But I use this a lot in combination with a vipassana practice. Because when you see your mind getting caught up with something, you know, you can, in the sort of classic vipassana sense, you just sort of hit it with, you know, impermanent, not self. You know, unsatisfactory. You know, the old one, two, three. You know. <laughs> You know, or if you've got a really good anatha, you know, chop, you just sort of hit it with a not me, not mine, and down it goes. But, um, you know, you have to, what happens with, uh, with clinging is that it's extraordinarily resourceful. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you could be standing, gloating over it in one corner, but you don't realize this is a tag match. <laughs> and you've got this other character bearing down on you from behind, and you're sort of looking at your knockout on the floor, meanwhile, the, the partner's about to clobber you from behind. So you kind of, there you are, you just gleefully let go of all that attachment to, to, uh, to say, your, your body, but then your, um, your, your attachment to your, the attachment to your opinions is just kind of in full spate. <laughs> or whatever, you know, it can, takes shape in many, many different ways. And also, I should stress that um, uh, you know, this is this is talking about you know, a subtle level of practice, and and uh, as the um, the fellow in the turquoise shirt was asking this morning, well, isn't isn't it be better to at least be concentrated rather than um, kind of totally all over the place? And I say absolutely. So, in this respect, I you know, it, like talking like this, it, it can it, it can. Um, Seem pretty abstruse and uh, and that, but it, you know, it's good to map out the more sort of subtle areas of the mental terrain, so that you have an, a, a good sense of, of where to go. So we, we work with where we are, but it's also good to have a, a clear feeling of of um, the the landscape ahead of us, so that you know as we encounter it, we know what's going on. We know how to work. We have some feeling of how to work with it.
Uh, Rinpoche has talked um, a bit about mind, essence of mind, and um, so I, I hesitate to kind of launch into into um, the, this his version of it um, or how he would express it. But one of the um, a simple, um, skillful means that um, that I've found, and in a way also of, of talking, uh, it kind of it's. It, Following up Ajahn Chah's teaching about you know you can't go forwards and you can't go back and you can't stand still you know where can you go you, all you can do is let go let go of self let go of time let go of place and then there's there's awareness there's luminosity radiance there's uh, peacefulness um, that's all you can say you can't say it's any place or it's any body or anything but that that's uh, that's the result of that letting go. Another way that he talked about it, one of his, actually the very last of his favorite little conundrums that he put to people before he, his health caved in, he would kind of run one of these for a few months at a time. He would have favorite, little, favorite things that he would grill people with. You know, whoever showed up, he'd ask them the same questions for, you know, for a few months, and then he'd kind of change subjects as everyone got used to it. And the very last uh, of these little um, snippets that he came up with was um, he would ask people, have you ever seen still water? And they go, yes. Why do you ask? That's a pretty stupid question. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Everyone's very respectful. Oh, yes, Lumpur, we, we've <laughs> seen still water before. Well, have you ever seen flowing water? It's even more stupid. Uh, yes, yes, uh, Lumpur, we, we've, seen, we've seen flowing water before. And they say, okay, did you ever see water that was still and flowing? Hmm. In a Thai language, uh, uh, you'd say as Nam Lai Ning. So, have you ever seen Nam Lai Henmai? Seen flowing water? Yes. Nam Ning Henmai? Yes. Nam Lai Ning Henrapao. Mui Hen. Never saw it. Like, he'd love to get that kind of. <laughs> Totally bewildered effect, and then say, uh, and then what he was talking about. So the mind's nature is like still flowing water. This is the nature of the mind, that it's still yet it's flowing. It's flowing yet it's still. That the mind itself, the um, the quality of awareness. Um, he would use the the, the uh, just the word mind, jit jitta. And you know that also the the concepts get used kind of in different ways, but in this respect, he'd say the mind itself is totally still. It has it has it, it has no um, movement. The mind's nature is completely still, silent, spacious. But the mind objects they flow through it. Sights and sounds and smell and taste and touch sense objects. They flow through the mind. Yet the mind's stillness is utterly uninterrupted by the presence of a flowing sense impressions and thoughts and emotions and feelings. The stillness of the, of the knowing mind is utterly unimpeded, unobstructed by the flow of, of perceptions. And they say, so why aren't you, you know, why do you get confused? 
Why do we get confused? It's because the, the heart gets entangled in sights and sounds and smell and taste and touch, thoughts and feelings, emotions. That the, the attention, as, as we've been saying, the, the, um, that clarity of the mind, uh, the energy of the mind gets uh, uh, entangled with sense impressions and uh, chasing the delightful, running away from the painful, opinionating about all the rest. It gets entangled. And so then we, we find ourselves you know, struggling, alienated, suffering. That's the, the source of the problem. So that recognizing this is the, you know, the nature of the mind, still like still flowing water, so then we begin to, say, contemplate our own experience in this way, so that there's an, making a clear distinction between uh, the mind which is knowing and then the sense impressions, thoughts and feelings that we experience. And, that, and like learning to take refuge in that quality of stillness, silence, spaciousness, which is the mind's own nature. This was actually... Um, the uh, insight, uh, Ajahn Chah was only with his teacher, Ajahn Man, for three days. You might, you might wonder why that was. For, for people in the Tibetan tradition, it was a kind of a Galugpa Nyingma issue, <coughs> rather than a <laughs> that uh, Ajahn Chah came from one, there's two sects of, uh, of Buddhism in, in Thailand. So Ajahn Chah came from one sect and his teacher, Ajahn Man, came from the other. So when Ajahn Chah went, went and met him as the great meditation master, and you know, very quickly he, uh, within a, 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 t- he came, was only there for a couple of days and listened to Ajahn Man's teachings uh, two or three times. And then it, be- it became clear that it wasn't going to be convenient for, for him and the, the monks who were with him to stay because it was a kind of different sect. So that it was going to be impolitic because of a sort of in those days, the sparring going on between those two sects, not because there was a problem between Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Man, but, you know, it's like the general friction in the air. And let's say within the Tibetan tradition, you have some class, some uh, ancient frictions. Is that correct? Some sense, yeah. So that uh, you have uh, a kind of um, sometimes difficulty staying in each other's places. So uh, Ajahn Chah um, uh, asked Ajahn Munch, well, should I change to, to join your sect? And Ajahn Munch said, oh, no, don't bother. They need good monks in, in your outfit too. <laughs> but the, the, uh, Ajahn Chah described many times how what he got from Ajahn Munch was precisely this insight. He says, up until that point, he'd never really understood that there is a mind and its objects. And that because of, uh, of getting the two confused and tangled up, then you know, he could never find peace. But what he had got from Ajahn Man was this clear sense that there is this, uh, this knowing mind, the Puru, the one who knows, that knowingness. And then there is the objects of knowing. And these are like a mirror and, it's, uh, and the image is reflected in it. That these are, the mirror is utterly un, it's unembellished or uncorrupted by the beauty or the ugliness. And the mirror doesn't even get bored of having nothing reflected in it, or really tedious and mundane things reflected in it. It's utterly indifferent. Just like Rinpoche's TV screen, you know, just, 
It just uh, displays its image uh, un- unconcernedly. So, you know, this was a, a major insight for Ajahn Chah, and it became a theme for his teaching. And the way he used to describe it, that I find very helpful, is he said it's like oil and water in the same bottle. Like the mind is like the oil, and the sense impressions are like the water. Mostly because our lives are very busy and turbulent, and it's like the, the oil and the water are all shaken up together, so that the, the knowing and its objects all seem like they're one substance. But if you let the mind calm down, you put the bottle down, then the oil and the water separate out. There's the awareness, there's the Buddha mind, and then there's the, uh, the impressions of the sense world. They separate out, they naturally separate out from each other. Intrinsically, they are not mixed. They will separate themselves out if you let them. You don't have to make them separate. <laughs> they will separate out if you let them. And then you see that the, the mind is one thing the mind objects are another. So in terms of, of, uh, of methodology, um, what I like to, to do, and this is, some, this is a, a very simple kind of practice, is to uh, remember that, not, uh, is, uh, first of all, say that your body is in your mind. Okay? Your body is in your mind. Everything you've ever known about your body, all the good bits, the bad bits, the mentionable bits, the unmentionable bits, everything, painful, pleasant, delightful, exotic, disastrous, all its different attributes, that, you know, its color, its texture, its feeling, its smell, its taste, has all been <laughs> known through the mind, right? And right now, you know, everything that we know about the body is known through our mind. If we were unconscious, we wouldn't know anything about the body. That's why they give you an anesthetic when they're going to operate on you. Right? I mean, it's kind of obvious. But we don't notice this. That everything that, that we know about the body is in the mind. And to rapidly expand the picture, the world is in our mind also. Right? And it's not saying the world is created by our minds. You know, sort of a conjured out of nothing. But everything that we've ever known about the world, about all the people, all the things, all the objects the, of the, the whole planet and the, of the cosmos, the whole universe has been known through the agency of our mind. It's known within our minds. So what, this, what we start to do, and we, we kind of shift things around in this way, rather than sort of me moving around in the world, we begin to see that the world is happening in our mind. And that when we begin to recognize, and this is not just a kind of clever little mind game, this is actually happening, right? Like right now. This room is in your mind. Like sound, color, feeling, the warmth of the afternoon, your kind of uh, feelings about the Dharma talk, the sensation of your body on the cushion, your thinking mind, uh, everything. The colors and forms and smells and tastes. Where are they happening? It's all happening in known through our consciousness. You, know, you close your eyes, the visual world ma- vanishes. You open your eyes, reappears. It's eye consciousness. It's, it's happening in the mind. So as we begin to do this uh, and kind of flip it around in this way, kind of turning the world inside out, then um, you start to be able to 
work with this kind of still flowing water model because you realize, ah, well, the mind which knows the world and knows the movement of all the people and things, that mind which is knowing it, in which all of this is happening, is absolutely still. It is devoid of relationship to, to, to space, to movement. It is, it is completely uh, spacious, empty. And then the objects of the world, the people, the things, the, the retreat, the routine, everything, uh, all the people around us are appearing, disappearing within that space. The perceptions, and this is a, a useful thing to do, uh, I find one of the easiest ways of working with this, first of all, is with the breath. That you, just to, if you're using a mindfulness of breathing, just noticing that the, the feeling of the breath, if you just follow the, the sensation of the breath, that the, the breath is moving, but that which knows the breath is not moving. 